This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Our guest today is Serge Elkinar, the founder, co-founder and CEO of Yellow Pepper, uh, which is headquartered in Miami. Serge, uh, thank you so much for joining us on Knowledge at Wharton. Thank you so much for having me. So to begin with, Serge, I wonder, since Yellow Pepper is focused on the mobile payment space in Latin America, uh, could we begin by talking about a little bit about what, what's the market like in Latin America for mobile payments and what did you see as the main business opportunity there? That's a great question. So um, <clears throat> let's split the market in two for, since we're in mobile payment, let's talk about mobile and then let's talk a little bit about banking and you know the infrastructure there in a sense. So mobile, when we started the company eight and a half years ago, uh, when we started doing financial services, the penetration of mobile phone in Latin America had an average of about 84% eight years ago. Today, we're above 100% in every single market where we operate. So mobile is a de facto uh, tool that people are using, right? A few years ago, with the um, uh, entrance of smartphones, um, you can deploy a more sophisticated system on mobile phone, and the access to internet and to data is now becoming uh, more and more accessible to the population as well as they start accessing the web from their smartphone versus their computer, right? Now, Latin America is such a big market. Can Correct. you talk a little bit about the different segments of the market and if there are some areas that are more developed than others? So yes, uh, that's a good question as well. Chile in general tends to be a little bit more developed. So let's look at the smartphone penetration, for instance. So in Chile, you have 56% smartphone penetration is the highest uh, smartphone penetration in Latin America. So that's quite a lot of um, market share from a smartphone perspective. Brazil is nearing 50% smartphone penetration. So a lot of people have smartphones. That doesn't mean that everybody has data plan on the smartphone, but as um, aspirational uh, tool, they want to have smartphones, right? Mexico is about 25% smartphone penetration. And uh, let's say Colombia and Ecuador are around 25 to 30% smartphone penetration. So you have slight difference within the market, but I would say that the least penetrated market, which possibly would be Bolivia is around 15 to 20%, and then the highest is 56% in uh, Chile. And then you can do a tie-in to kind of the smartphone penetration for the bankerization. So Chile has a bankerization of 60%, so 60% of the population has bank account and use them. Uh, Mexico has 25% to 30% bankerization, I would say it's more 30% now. Colombia is going towards 30 to 40% bankerization. But what is quite interesting is that I would say that 80 to 90% of people that have a smartphone have a bank account and or have a credit card. Right? So when so, you say bankerization, does that mean that these people are using mobile phones for banking or it just no, means that they have access it, to it banking? It means they have a bank account. They don't use mobile. Uh, there is not an overlap of 100% or even 80% of usage of mobile for their bank account. But it's a good point because... The biggest problem within the bankerized population is the fact that people may not use their bank account as much as we would use it in the United States or in Europe or in other parts of the world because of access 
to their bank account. So if you look at access purely based on bank branches, then you have a problem because there is a scarcity of bank branches in those countries and they're trying to develop new channels to get to people and for people to access their bank account or credit card. Mobile is in my mind the most transformational one and the most impactful at the least cost for the bank to operate or the ecosystem as a whole to operate the mobile channel. So there is a very good overlap between mobile as a channel, banking as a vertical, bridging the two or uh, connecting the two to unlock different value-added services. One, of course, is mobile banking, traditional mobile banking like we do in the US, but the other one is mobile payment, extension of network. And when I say network is, um, you know, point of sale systems that through the mobile phone, you can now make a point of sale like Square, right? That just filed for IPO and going IPO in the next few weeks. So uh, that's the biggest revolution, I would say, in the point of sale or the acquiring side of the business. So mobile is really unlocking a huge opportunity for consumer, for banks, for retailers, and for technology companies like ours. Uh, I just returned from a trip to Africa mm-hmm. where... Uh, mobile banking is all the rage, especially East African countries like Kenya, where uh, services like M-Pesa have become dominant uh, at a country level. Uh, How do you see the growth of uh, mobile and (coughs) the mobile payment space in Latin America, and what are some of the challenges uh, to the growth of the mobile market there? So, Africa... To make a slight comparison, Africa was less developed in terms of the financial ecosystem and infrastructure, real hardware, software, you know, connection between the banks, point of sale system, card issued. It was much less developed. And therefore, um, M-Pesa type systems became dominant because they were much faster at growing and they became the switch of the country at the end of the day because the actual switch of the country was so small that they had a place to be dominant. Latin America is slightly different because even though we're not as developed, let's say, as the US or Europe, the switch, the issuing banks, the banks are bigger, the switch are large, the infrastructure is large. So let's say Mexico, for instance, you have two million or two and a half million retailers or retail location. 600,000 have point of sale system where they can accept credit card or debit card, right? So it's already 20, 30% of the retailers can accept. So there is a huge infrastructure that has been deployed in these countries. Because of that, we have one of the challenge, but one of the benefit as well is that we can use that infrastructure if you can, which is the benefit. And the challenge is to use that infrastructure, you need to create partnerships with the processors, the banks, the acquirers. That has taken, that was always our philosophy at Yellow Pepper to create those partnerships. And it has taken us nearly three years to build these relationships, sign them into contract, integrate them from a hardware and software perspective, certify them with the local player, including sometimes regulation, regulation impact. And we're now live within those infrastructure in Mexico, in Colombia, and in Ecuador. So that's a little bit the uh, environment 
versus let's say Africa where you know some of these services were able to become dominant without integrating into the current right. uh, I'd ecosystem. like to come back in a minute to yellow pepper mm -hmm. and its strategy but the other very interesting dynamic you often see in these markets is that there is almost like a tug of war between the banks and the telecom companies mm -hmm. about who should own the customer mm -hmm. uh, you see that very dramatically taking place in Africa. Mm. How is it playing out in Latin America? Okay, so that's uh, another very good question, of course. There is two things that impact that tug of war. Regulation, right, which in Africa was telco favorable. In Latin America is bank favorable. So you always need a bank, no matter what, which already makes the bank a centerpiece of that. And I think technology is changing the tug of war. Why? When you see systems like M-Pesa or EasyPesa in Pakistan or, you know, uh, Airtel Money or any of these, you know, Tigo Cash, all of these systems, you depend on technology that is controlled by the telecom operator. Mm. Text message, USSD, SIM-based browsing system. Mm. And those systems were developed since 2007, 2008 in Africa. In 2007, there was a big revolution in the mobile world, which is the birth of the iPhone. Right. And at the same time, the launch of Android, and therefore the birth of all smartphones running Android, which is 80% of the world's smartphones. When you start having access to a smartphone, you don't depend anymore on the carrier for a specific technology within the mobile phone mm -hmm. or within the channel of communication. That unlocks the capabilities for whether it's banks, retailers, or companies like ours to run programs or build systems that do not depend on telecom. So this is a perfect segue to Yellow Pepper and its strategy for entering into this market in Latin mm -hmm. America. When you started, what was your strategy? And as you have continued your operations, has that strategy changed in any way? Can you yes. help us explain what you've been trying to do? So I, built, I, I founded the company doing value-added services here in the United States. So I was not doing anything in Latin America. I had never stepped foot in Latin America until 10 years ago. And uh, when we went to Latin America, we went to Ecuador first, and we continued servicing value-added service to uh, enterprise such as TV stations or you know newspapers to run some of their services via text message. And then we identified an opportunity in 2007, 2006, 2007, in the financial services, specifically mobile banking, because the lines at the banks were so long that there must be a better way than just making the line to understand what's your balance on your account. And internet banking in 2007 in Latin America was less than 5% of transaction at any bank. So 95% of the transaction was done at the cashier in a bank branch. And out of that queue, 65% of the queue was bank balance. I mean, your balance on your account was the question. So we said, let's use the mobile for that transaction at least. And that's how we were born in the mobile banking uh, world. 2007, we shut down anything that was not financial services. We focused 100% in Latin America, so we shut down any businesses we had in the United States from a consumer standpoint. And we started building with our banks different services, first on text message, then it was other channel, and then in the last four or five years, you know, uh, smartphone 
uh, development of apps like we see in the US. And this is the hyper growth we're having right now is with uh, smartphone apps for mobile banking. And then three years ago, uh, we decided to expand the capabilities. We looked with our banks, what else can we do with our platform that services you as a bank? And we expand these capabilities saying we'll go into payment. In the mobile banking space, we already have 5 million users every month that our system touches, mm -hmm. and they generate approximately 30 million transactions on a monthly basis, so nearly 400 million transactions every year. Mm -hmm. We wanted to use that uh, cultive, you know, captive audience of consumers to extend the capabilities into mobile payments. And so that's how three years ago we started this integration of all the systems. The view of the strategy from three years ago till today has not specifically changed, but it evolved in one way. The world is changing clearly into a digital world. And that's every aspect of our life. That has nothing to do with payment. That has nothing. It's really the world is evolving and integrating our digital self, if we can say so. Banks, retailers, and processors in our industry are not specifically ready for that transformation. Because of that, it leaves space for new entrants to start disrupting completely that system. And the latest newest entrant is Apple, who produces phone but now launched Apple Pay. And they're now getting into the payment system. Others are Google with Android Pay, then you have Samsung Pay, you know, and you have uh, Stripe, which is, you know, so our philosophy two, three years ago was, okay, banks, processor, and retailers in Latin America, let's get together and let's together build this new digital age of commerce, shopping, banking, payment. Let's do it together. If you don't do it, you will be displaced in certain areas by new entrants. And if we do it together and we'll help you do it, you can remain an important part of the conversation. Doesn't mean others won't enter, but you will remain an important part of the conversation. And that has been our strategy all uh, over these years, is let's work with the banks, let's work with the retailer, let's work with the processor, and let's bring them into this next wave of transformational technology and digitalization of the world. Why was your approach to try to work with the banks rather than as a startup yourself try to disrupt it uh, and, 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 and to try to uh, enter into the payment yourself? That's one question. The other question is how receptive were the banks to, Very good question. to, to <clears throat> your uh, warnings that if they did not adapt that they would be at a serious handicap? Okay, so the reason why we work with them is Different difference from again the US and Europe and LATAM is the banking industry is extremely consolidated, which means that you have two or three players that dominate 70% market share. And you have a total of maybe 15 relevant banks in each market. And I think that's valid for pretty much all emerging markets, not only Latin America, or most of emerging markets. In the US you have ten thousand banks. You have 4,000 PSPs, you have, you know, 2,500, you know, a regulated processor by Visa and MasterCard or accredited processor by Visa and MasterCard. Again, 
back to LATAM, you have two processors that are owned by the same 15 banks. You have one or two PSPs, if they do exist. In some countries, they don't even exist. And it's the processor doing the same thing. So it is so consolidated that it's a handicap to get in. But if you are able to get in, then it's very difficult for somebody else to get in. So instead of trying to work as an independent startup and kind of, you know, piss them off, if you want, <laughs> for lack of a better word, right? I said, okay, let's at least try to work with them. If they're receptive, we have a huge dominating position that we can create over the next few years and we can defend it much better. And if they don't, we'll go our own way. That brings me to your second question. How receptive were the banks, processor and retailer? They're not always receptive. Some banks have visions and I was able to, let's say, sell them on a PowerPoint. Other banks have egos that trump their vision, right? And maybe the guy you meet is the wrong guy. Maybe the CEO has a different vision. You cannot always go to the CEO. Some of these banks are global banks and they don't even decide any strategy at the local level. You have to go talk to their headquarters, whether it's Madrid, New York, you know, Barcelona, whatever it is. And so you have to find always one or two champions in each country to put on the, ignition, the ignition, to ignite the system. We were able to do that with Banamex in Mexico. We were able to do that with Grupo Aval in Colombia. We were able to do that with Grupo Pichincha Diners in Ecuador. And then others follow suit. So it is a long journey. As I say, we're not running a sprint, we're running a marathon. <laughs> so we have to be there for the long term. That requires, of course, a lot of capital to be deployed not only to operate, but to invest, to integrate, to, you know, lots of parts. But once you're able to do what we've done over the last three years, which is convincing some of the banks, integrating with the processors as our partners, disseminate our software in the point of sale system and go live, then the position is very, you know, envious. And if you want to launch mobile payment now in the countries where we are, you do it with us because it's much easier than doing it by yourself. What is the main business opportunity you see for Yellow Pepper uh, in Latin America over the next two to three years? So the business, I, I always said that mobile as a platform, as I said earlier in this interview, is it will unlock capabilities that do not exist today. For me, the biggest opportunity is to be able to really bring a face and a name to the consumer that's shopping in a retail space, which today they don't know who you are. Same with the bank. The bank will know who you are, but they don't know what you do. So I think that mobile really, and the technology we're bringing and the opportunity that I see the best is by jumpstarting the engagement with the consumer through mobile, from the retailer and from the bank and the brands, you're able to generate additional revenues for everybody mm. and therefore for us to take a piece of these additional revenues that we're able to unlock. What are the biggest challenges you see in grabbing these op the opportunity that you describe and how are you planning to overcome those challenges? Um, two main challenges. Consumer adoption is one challenge. Like, 
you need to move already people from using cash to using credit card or debit card, right? And then when you tell them, well, not only is a credit card or debit card, but now that credit card and debit card is not the plastic, it's the mobile phone, they have to really, you know, get comfortable with that. To get them comfortable, you start incentivizing them to do that. If you use your mobile phone, it will be cheaper for you, or you will have a promotion, or you will have a loyalty that adds faster points than if you use your plastic or your cash. So you have to talk to them directly into their wallet so that they at least taste the product, look at it, and start using it, right? I would say that that's the first challenge. The second challenge sometimes is a technical challenge where you need to integrate a lot of parts and it takes time and therefore you're delaying always, you know, massive growth. Same thing, Apple Pay launched, you know, 12 million merchants in the US or something like that. They launched with 200,000 locations. They're now at like 1 million locations. Okay, it's still not all the location in the United States. So I can use Apple Pay, but I can't use it everywhere I go shopping or where I consume. That's a challenge, so you need to continuously integrate. And the third challenge is, as I said, some of the banks and some of the retailers may not have the vision, may be confused, may want to see where the market is going before making a move. That delays again the equation. But over the next three to five years, all of this will fall in place and all of this will start clearing the path. We were able to be a big first mover we're able to take advantage of that, then I believe we'll be part of this discussion, you know, in five years' time as well. <laughs> so, so uh, uh, what are some of the steps you are taking today to make sure that you overcome these challenges? We always try to find a bank that's large enough to be one of the sponsors, let's say, of the program. Uh, we were lucky in Colombia to have eight banks immediately. We were lucky in uh, Mexico to work with Banamex. And we, we find the same philosophy uh, valid in the retailers. So we're like looking for large retailers to start embracing the system. So it shows confidence from the, it shows trust in the system, therefore brings confidence to the consumer to use the system. So we just launched a campaign with McDonald's uh, in the last two weeks. We're starting things with Circle K in uh, Mexico. We're doing things with Eden Red and uh, gas station. So different retailers that we're able to sign early on that have the vision enables us to create trust in the system and brings confidence to the end user. I have one or two you know, final questions of a more personal nature. Uh, one, one of the things that you referred to right in the beginning of our conversation was how digital transformation is not just limited to mobile or payments, but it's pervasive. It is changing almost every industry that it touches. Uh, a corresponding challenge, uh, in addition to this digital transformation, is whether we as individuals are going through a personal transformation so that we can be successful in this new digital world. In your case, what have you done to bring about some personal transformation? What are you doing differently so that you succeed not just in the previous world, that analog world that existed, but succeed in the digital world? So, I say one good thing is I'm still young enough that I was already like kind of born in the digital transformation. I'm not 
so young that I only knew the digital transformation. I mean, when I was born, there was no internet. So, but I still had my first PC in 94, right? My first Apple Macintosh, not a PC. <laughs> <laughs> At the time, it was being an outsider. Now it's like the, right. the norm, right? No, but so yes, I think that I'm young enough that it became part of my world pretty fast, right? But when I see my children, I mean, they're born with the iPad in their hands, yes. right? So their world is digital. The way they read books, the way they interact with uh, activities at school, the way they, you know, train for writing and things like that. Things have changed, right? So I think that first you need to learn from the younger generation. So mm. one of the things that I'm trying to do always is go in the markets mm. and try to learn from everyday life. You know, sitting at the Starbucks coffee in Mexico for three hours a day, mm. you start seeing how younger people, you know, are interacting. Mm. How, what are some of the things you've seen? Some of the things you see, for instance, is um, more and more communication on the cell phone, like instant messaging, like the WhatsApp mm. of the world, the Facebook Messenger and things like that. So I think communication between people has changed drastically. And, you know... When I was 15 years old, there was no WhatsApp and you started dating a girl and, you know, it was nearly like phone conversation, literally from the, you know, fixed phone. There was no cell phone nearly. Well, I was too young to get a cell phone. They had, they had cell phone, but it was way too expensive then, right? Today, it's like 15 year old. What do you mean? I mean they have cell phone, they have messenger, they have Snapchat, they have WhatsApp. There is like, so the communication is changed drastically. That brings two-tone conversation in our lives the social or the digital conversation tone and the live conversation tone. I've realized that sometimes over email and over chat and things like that, people are more rude. Mm -hmm. They say things that they would never say to you in person mm -hmm. because they're you know, looking at you in the eyes. It's not the same thing as looking through a screen and sending a message. So this is quite interesting because I pay a lot of attention to not do that. My tone in... The digital format or my tone in person is the same one. Mm. And I do value something that perhaps not everybody of the newer generation does value is human interaction. Mm. So I travel extensively because I want to meet the people I do business with. I want to shake their hands when we start the meeting or when we close the deal. I want to celebrate with them, you know, or negotiate the deal of the term, the term of the deal, sorry, uh, over lunch or over dinner. People tend to forget that human interaction mm -hmm. these days. And it's all, okay, we can do a Skype conversa conversation. You can do a Skype conversation. There is no, nothing wrong with it. And we do a lot of Skype conversation in our daily job. But you can never read a person or get to know a person the same way as if you were there in the room with them. So I think that that's something that I see changing too much the world, where I personally hold back a little bit and hold still very valuable human interaction, which to me is critical in all relationships, personal or professional, in the world. So I think that that's, I would say, the biggest thing for me. In your role as uh, the co-founder and CEO of Yellow Pepper, what is the biggest leadership challenge you faced? How did you overcome it and what did you learn from <clears> it? So I became co-founder and CEO when I was 25 years old. So I was young and stupid <laughs> right out of school. So you do a lot of mistakes, right, when you're young. And you're also a lot more bullish and you stop thinking or you don't think through some of the decisions, right? And that's, again, professionally, but also personally. 
So you learn from some mistakes. Some mistakes are more costly than others. So 11 years later, you know, you think through uh, this uh, decision much more. You analyze the decision. I don't like analysis paralysis. So, I mean, we'll analyze and then we'll take a decision. We don't analyze, then analyze, then analyze, then analyze, because then you never advance. I think the biggest change in me as a leader from 10 years ago to today is the investment in the people. You can't do it yourself. You need to build a team to do it. And even though I had learned that theoretically speaking in college, and I applied by hiring a bunch of people, we realized many years ago that it's not always the right people that I was hiring because we were not paying attention to the process of hiring and the fit of the people we were hiring, whether it's from a culture standpoint, whether it's... And on top of that, we run a multi-country operation. So you need to integrate those countries, the cultural differences from you know, one place to another place of work, etc., etc. So in the last two and a half years, we've put a lot more uh, attention to human resource, to talent recruitment, to development of talent, and uh, to making sure that the team fits together so that we can see what we see today. It's a higher productivity at the end of the day uh, within the company. And so I think that has been the biggest lesson and, you know, the most challenging one. Because it's difficult to recruit good talent. Well, that's great. Uh, where do you see Yellow Pepper going in the next four or five years? So definitely I see us as a dominant player in our industry in Latin America. We're very much focused right now in LATAM. I don't have plans specifically to take it outside of the region. There is a lot of work in the region and I'm very passionate about the region. Even though I'm born and raised in Belgium, I kind of fell in love with uh, the region. Uh, my wife is from Ecuador, so <laughs> that's one part of falling in love with the region. But honestly, like the region has so much potential uh, that needs to be unlocked that I think you know we need to dominate uh, that region in our industry. And I think that, uh, you know, four or five years from now, if you think mobile payment or mobile banking in the region, you'll think Yellow Pepper. Uh, so I've run out of questions I wanted to ask. Is there anything I should have asked but I have not that you would like to talk, that you'd like to add? No, I think we've covered uh, quite a lot of things. But um, no, one thing that I would like add, add as being here now in Wharton and, you know, with you at Knowledge at Wharton, I think that what... Um, you, we were talking earlier that I'm here for a, con a conference on Latin America, you know, what the academia is doing to also look at the prospects and unlock the mindset of students around different regions in the world, in this case, you know, Latin America, and what you guys are bringing with your, you know, worldliness and global view of uh, what's happening, the changes, you know, in different industry. I think it's very, very helpful to businesses, to startup like ours, you know, to look at uh, that outlook in the next three to five years. So I'm very glad and very honored to have been invited here and to be able to talk to you. Uh, Serge, thank you so much for speaking with Knowledge at Wharton. Thank you. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.